Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we are preaching. So you first, friend. What's astonishing you? Listen, before I went on vacation a couple weeks ago, um, you know, I had the situation at Dorado Church. Uh, something wonderful and powerful and beautiful happened. Uh, you know, like many congregations, we're in the midst of a transition that is messy and challenging and faithful. And um, one of the things I'm affirming often is God's faithfulness to us mm -hmm. because we're in a place where um, because of fewer resources and fewer people, we have to take risks, like real mm -hmm. risks, scary risks. And sometimes we are... Um, move to take a step of faith, but our fear and anxiety mm -hmm. makes us pause. And so I'm constantly reminding myself and others that God is faithful, that God will provide. And so after worship a couple of Sundays ago, um, the, the people were being very kind and wonderful. They were celebrating my birthday before, you mm -hmm. know, I left for vacation and um, had this buffet of ice cream. And so we were enjoying a time of of, of, of eating ice cream, and one of the elders came into the fellowship hall, and she said, you will never guess what just happened. Well, you know, that's the beginning of a great God story. I said, well, um, Robin, what happened? And she said, uh, two other elders and I were in the office counting the offering, and this woman knocked on the door, and um, we let her into the building, and we assumed she needed help, and so we invited her in, and, um, and then we invited her to enjoy some ice cream, and she said, no, 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 I'm only here because God told me, God sent me here to bless this church, and I'm just wow. here to bless this church, and she pulled out her checkbook, and she wrote a check, not for a lot of money, I mean, not for a lot of money. Um, and she said, God just wants me to do this. And she gave the check to the elder. And then she said, can I pray? Um, because they, they were really trying to get her to stay and meet mm -hmm, people. Mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. um, and she said, no, I, I, I'm just mm -hmm. keeping this assignment. And uh, she said, I, I just want to pray. And she prayed to, uh, uh, to bless a blessing upon uh, me and the ministry and the elders and our work in the neighborhood. And this elder came in just blown away. Mm -hmm. And so I said, Robin, we just we just have to tell everyone. And um, so I stopped uh, the ice cream festivities and said, OK, Robin, share this story. And everyone was in awe. I mean, and it's just it's just a it's it's a simple yet powerful story of God's faithfulness to us, that God really does supply manna in the wilderness. And again, it wasn't a lot of money at all. It's, it's, the, it's the beautiful act of this woman saying, God told me to do this. Right. Well, and it's power. It's spiritual power. Absolutely. I mean, because I'm just blown away with, so you all were gathered together. You were praying. You were sharing fellowship. You were breaking bread. And then this woman came with as a sign from the Lord. And then you were in awe. And so literally, you are the end of Acts 2, right? Hello. Like the community was filled with awe and wonder mm -hmm. and signs of the Holy Spirit. And I, I just think it's so... Beautiful. And I think we have to stop. I mean, on the one hand, I, I understand that you are like letting people understand that you're not in awe over the numerical size of the money gift. Correct. I, I understand that because you want to make sure that people understand that what you're in awe about is the manifestation of God's faithfulness and that you're the manifest that you are trusting and God is showing you all. It is right that you trust. I am with you. And that's what you're in awe over. But I also just think it's important to realize that like this is huge because it is not money that grows the church and makes it faithful. Like in the world, we think that money is, the, well, in the world, it's just true that money is the only tool that people have to build something. And if you don't have money, you're not building anything. But in the kingdom of God, it's not that money doesn't matter. It's a gift and we're responsible for how we steward it and how we use it. But like lack of money does not mean lack of power 
in the kingdom of God. And so to be able to say, like, she gave you a great gift, a mustard seed gift, a yeast gift, like the way the kingdom of God comes. And it's just um, really, really just beautiful and powerful. Pa- yeah. 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 That's really cool. Yeah. It's cool. So what's astonishing you? Well, I mean, it's interesting. Um, so this past Sunday after church, I had been out of town um, the previous week visiting my mom with my kids. And um, so I had missed a Sunday um, two Sundays ago and one of our um elders, Nicole Thompson, who often preaches at Derrida, preached here on Jesus, Justice, and Juneteenth, and people should go to our um, podcast and YouTube channel and find that sermon, because it was really good, just really powerful. Um, so then I'm, I wasn't there on Sunday, and I was listening to the word later, and I don't know about you, but like, there's just something about hearing really good preaching that then is so inspiring Absolutely. and encouraging and empowering. And anyway, we just, I mean, it's, it's, it's the bread, right? It's the word of God. It's the bread. And so, um, it was just back on Sunday and just so happy, um, to be home with people, with our people. Like, you know, I was visiting family and then I came home to family and I know that sounds cheesy. I mean, right. Like 10 years ago, me would be like, oh, but it's just the truth. And, um, so I was so happy to be home, and I was just so, sort of full and um, um, just seeing the signs of the goodness of God all all over the place and in the sanctuary. And then afterwards, I came um, back from worship, and I was in my office um, connecting with somebody about something. And um, one of our um, our ministry coordinator and our clerk of session was looking for a document. Um, and so she was looking through the file cabinets outside my office and she brought in um the bulletin from 10 years ago so 10 years previous to that sunday and it's so interesting because i had this message that i had printed in the bulletin our bulletin was really wordy (laughs) and um like it started with i've listened to many of you this week as you shared your concerns about the changes we're facing in our life together here at the grove um, over and over again, people wanted to know how I was feeling. So I thought I would share my thoughts. And right that week, we had had to just do this really drastic right sizing of our budget um, because we were on this transformation journey. And at that point, two thirds of the congregation had left. Um, the church had been running a deficit budget of fifty to sixty thousand dollars for over a decade. Wow. Um, so we had to, um, and that was when everyone was there. And then we had two thirds of the people leave. And so. Um, I, our our friend Lisa Coons like sat down with me and was like, Kate, your budget, you have to right size your budget. Like this is not the budget for the church you have. And so we had a, um, a part-time administrator and we had to let him go. We had to um, cut my salary in half. We had to um, ask our longtime sexton to cut his hours. And so I was just saying like, I'm like all of you, like I'm wondering, like what are we gonna do without Jacob? And I'm gonna miss him. And what are we gonna do with Thomas around left? Like how are we gonna pick up the slack? And how, you know, um, and then I said, um, you know, beginning, given all those painful emotions, I'm ashamed to admit this, but beneath the nerves, anxiety, and sadness, I feel hope. Um, and I, whatever, I said some other things, and. Um, Everywhere I turn in this church, even among all that other stuff, I see the movement of the Holy Spirit in the hope of new faces gathering us for worship and the delight on long-term members' faces as they welcome them in the rapid expansion of our community ministries and the crowd that comes to share our community meal and the joy of our fellowship. Um, in this past year, we've been through some of the worst things that can happen to a church. We've been separated from people we love and we've run out of money. According to conventional wisdom, we aren't supposed to be here, but we are still here and even more we're growing. Only the presence of God can explain that. And I believe that God who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. I don't know how God will do it, but I'm learning so slowly to trust that he will. The Grove is my dream church. To me, you are the beloved community. I'm honored to be your pastor and I can't wait to walk through this next extraordinary season of faithfulness with you all. And it's just so interesting, like, when I said it, I meant it. <laughs> I did. I meant it. And I also just, you know, to have just left worship in the sanctuary with a community that has grown and changed. It just never in my wildest dreams would I have ever expected 
it to work. (laughs) I just... Well, I think that highlights something that we need to acknowledge as Christians living in the United States, that because often we have so much Mm -hmm. that when it comes to the life of faith, the life of trusting God, we often reserve faith for times of serious illness, Mm -hmm. for times of... um, when, when there is, within our own homes, uh, economic lack. Or times of war. Yes. Yeah. But when it comes to the ministry of the church, so often we have so many resources, at least in the past, that we can formulate our plan, implement our plan, and for many years... Our plan has so connected with the broader culture and society that it seemed to be, well, this is the way you do it. Right. We felt responsible. Mm -hmm. Like if I can't do church, then church can't be done. And I I think like what what, what we are learning and what we're still learning, like let me just tell you, there are several situations at the Grove right now that I'm like, oh my gosh, I am undone because it is just too much. I can't fix it. I don't know how we're going to get through it. And I just have to wait on the Lord and I don't have any guarantees and it's so uncomfortable. And, but I think you recognize that like to be in a position where you're not in control when all you can do is be faithful and leave the results up to God, that feels so uncomfortable to us. And that is the sweet spot for relationship with the Lord and growing. And I just want to be clear that had, had the Grove closed a year later, it still would have been, faithful and beautiful and right in God's eyes, right? Like what the results are, especially what the, the what, what results we can see. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we just have a feeling that like, well, if faith um, leads to X, then it quote worked. And the reality is when, it, when we take a step of faith and our desire is to please God, then it doesn't really matter what happens next we've pleased God. And so I think just in that moment to, to do those things, which was definitely a hundred percent due to the wisdom and grace of the Holy spirit and not towards me or leadership or anything else. Cause I didn't have any idea what I was doing. And God just sent people to surround me, to show me what to do and hold me by the hand. And, you know, I mean, but, but what was pleasing to God in that moment is that we said, okay, we're going to continue to walk in faith for as long as we can. And then to discover that God is completely capable to do what God wants to do. Well, what I love in what you read um, just a moment ago um, was toward the end where you quote uh, from the Apostle Paul that God who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. And then you added, I don't know how. I don't have any idea how. I have no idea how. I remember when I left seminary, I read a lot of books um, on leadership, mm-hmm. mostly coming out of the business world. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those books said that if you're going to be a real leader, you need to have the answers. You need mm-hmm. you add value to your organization by being the person who has the answers. And that's what a leader does. Mm-hmm. And um, in this season, especially, I am learning that that's not true, uh, entirely true for the church, that there are many times when God brings me as the pastor into a place where I do not have the answers. And I said, Lord, I'm just trusting you because I don't know how to get this done. I'm not even sure what my next step ought to be. And so I am waiting on you. I'm trusting you even just for the next step. Well, and I think the, the real, the, the truth is, is that we left seminary being told like, okay, here's how you be a good pastor. And then we turned to leadership books, which I'm not mad at, like both seminary and that Mm -hmm. training was really helpful tools for the toolbox. But you know, the idea was, okay, this is how you're going to grow a church, grow a quote, good church. And so this idea that like, if you're a good leader, you will be able to use the resources and gifts that you have skillfully and strategically in order to produce X result. And I think what we have to understand is God does not need us to do anything. God does not need us to create anything. And so what we need to understand as leaders, servant leaders of faith communities is it's our job to say to the world, 
to the world, but really to our communities. Like we are ridiculously in charge of how we respond in faith to where we are. Yes. We are not in charge of what happens next, but there is no power in the world that can force us not to be faithful, right? So whatever happens, if our church burns down tomorrow, we can be faithful in the way we respond to that. If if two-thirds of the congregation walks out, we can't bring them back, and, and we can't necessarily, you know, bring, you know, seven times their people back in, but we can be faithful in how we respond. Like, what we can do is in every place where life and the spirit leads us, we can inquire of the Lord and say, what does it look like to be faithful given what I have, not what I don't have? (laughs) What does it look like to be faithful in the relationships and in the spaces with the gifting and the resources that I have right now? And that's it. That's, that's, that's my lane. And I think partly what we as pastors of American churches need to train people to think is like to understand our right size. Like we are not here to be God for other people. Like God is God all by himself, as as the people say. God is God all by herself, as the people also could say. Um, but but we God is doing God's thing and it's our job to participate in it and not resist it, but but not to control it. So when we feel like, well, how are we gonna get people to stop doing X, Y, or Z, or how are we gonna get the culture to do X, Y, or Z to say, like, you know, we that's we know that it's our job to be faithful within our sphere of influence and that is that is us um in our communities so i mean this is part of my like gentle frustration sometimes with our denomination like i'm so grateful that we are part of a branch of the body of the church that really understands that we have to care about things that sometimes don't directly affect us so i'm grateful to be part of a church that says hey we think that Jesus has an opinion about, say, border policies, immigration policies, about education policies of the nation, about, you know, I, I'm grateful that we understand that these things are, um, you know, that harming people, even people who are not part of our faith community or people who are not like us, is it displeases God. I'm glad we get that. But I also am like, it's just interesting when I, when we can gather as a national body and spend all of our time basically discerning how should the United States government handle X, Y, or Z. And so little of our time saying, no, how do we in our own congregations where we have complete autonomy and authority, how do we look internally and say, if this is what um, the community should look like, affordable housing or, you know, life-giving reconciliation between different ethnicities of people. How do we look inside our sanctuaries and say, okay, well, what are we doing with what we have? Do we see um, what we think should be happening out there? Do we see what that happening in our spaces? Because we are totally responsible for that. And um, so I think, anyway, I, I lost the train, but I, I just think we need to take seriously that it's not our job to get to control what everybody else does. Or what God does with our gifting. We only get to wake up every day and say, I'm here right now. What does it look like to be faithful today? And then to trust that God does amazing things and delights in doing amazing things through weak, confused people. Because then God gets all the glory. And it's not, look, here's the pastor who saved the day. Or look, here's the denomination that saved the day. It is, we know those people didn't have it in them. Mm-hmm. We know, so it's it, only God could have done that. Um, so that was exciting. Just to look at that message was was really um, just made me astonished. It, I, I was going to say it sounds like it brought some things full circle. Well, I just like at the time, like you know, sometimes you just it's it's coming from you, but it's not in you, right? Yeah. So no, even I at the time, you know, it. just manifesting a, a faith that, I mean, I had, it was sincere, but I just had no experience to back it up. I believe, help my unbelief. Correct, correct. And I, I can just remember at the time, other people sort of bearing witness to ways that God had been faithful to them. And honestly, like, it was kind of frustrating because I was like, well, that's not my experience, so how does that help? And I think the first thing, like, it's not going to be your experience until you sort of step out beyond the realm of what you can control and and seek the Lord and see what happens. So mm. anyway. Mm. 
Well, let's talk about what we are both thinking about, yes. which is um, Roe versus Wade. Uh, toward the end of last week, the Supreme Court of the United States overturned uh, Roe versus Wade, which legalized abortion in this country, and um, that is on our minds. Yeah, I think um, it was interesting for, but we talked on Friday. I was driving back from Kentucky, and then um, I we were talking right away about are we going to in worship on Sunday address this from the pulpit? Um, and one of the things that I was just struck by in myself, and also then later when I was finally at a place that I was just sort of looking at social media and looking at how different people in my community, it, like in my community, and then also particularly in my church, were just processing that information and seeing expressions of lament and grief and fear and anger that were very similar to me, to those kinds of, uh, you know, were very similar to the kinds of um, expressions that I read after um, a, a mass shooting or after racial violence. Um, and so it was interesting to me that while I just have 100% clarity in my mind um, and in my heart, really in my heart, that when there has been um, an act of racial violence, um, that it, I always feel compelled to address it directly from the pulpit. Um, and so it was interesting for me just to note in myself that I didn't have that same, I mean, there's a real open wondering for me, um, am I, am I called to address this or not? And, and feeling hesitation and not really just wanting to interrogate that, um, and, and know, figure out where it came from, because what is true, what I know is true is that like, I, I want to be faithful and I, and at the very least, I want to want to be faithful, right? So sometimes you just are saying whether or not it would be my preference to address a particular thing. If I understand that the Lord is calling me to do it, I will do it. But sometimes I don't know if my hesitation is because the Lord isn't calling me to do it or if I'm just for some reason not understanding correctly where to go. And so um, I just, you know, it was interesting to me to note that even though the a lot of the pain that I heard and fear that I heard in the voices of people I love and particularly people I love in my community was very similar, like my response was very different. And I and my sense of how to move forward was very different and sort of trying to understand that. Um, and, and one thing that I came down to on is just that unlike issues of violence, um, particularly violence um, by the state against, uh, you know, unarmed people and issues of racism, um, those are those are clear and unnuanced in terms of the kingdom of God. There's there's not there's not both sides in those issues, even though people on both sides are beloved in God's sight. Um, I have clarity um, about those issues. The abortion issue, it is different for me, and, and maybe this is because I am need to grow and change and learn, and I'm willing to concede that right off the bat. But the abortion issue is different for me because there is nuance there. And I think it um, just even to be able to name that feels important and honestly a little bit scary because I think people who are strongly convicted on both sides of um, the conflict over abortion, there's at least in what you, the voices you hear prominently in the public, there is no nuance. It's right. either you are, um, you are. This or that. Right. You're either righteous or you're unrighteous. Mm -hmm. And so if you hold my position, you're righteous. If you deviate in any way or show any doubt or any, then you are unrighteous. You are either, you know, pro baby or pro women. And there's no in between. It's an absolute. And I would just say like, for me, um, I can't, um, you know, I, I can't 
I, I can't make either side see me as one of them because there's just nuance for me in this in a way that I think um, would feel like a betrayal to people I love on both sides and to people I respect on both sides of this debate. So, um, and because when something is nuanced for me, I don't especially want to jump in with 24 hours without really thinking about, let me make sure that I am um, really interrogating my own everything um, and, and inquiring of the Lord, like what is faithful and not, not what will make me feel good to say out loud or what I want people to um, feel about me, but really what is um, the Holy Spirit desiring God's people to hear um, on this Sunday and in this way. So I just was not ready to speak about it in worship on Sunday morning, though I think it is entirely appropriate for people in the church to want to know what their pastor thinks. Um, and I just wasn't ready to share that. So that's the first thing I wanted to say. Wow. That's helpful um, because I am also thinking that this is a an issue that has a lot of nuance. Um, I am one that thinks abortion ought to be rare, very rare. And what I hear in the debate is really two vulnerable groups, the unborn and women. And I hear those who are pro-choice. Well, they, they are not saying we want to kill babies. They're right. not saying that. The, the, the heart cry seems to be in a society, in a world where women's bodies have been controlled, commercialized. Commodified. Commodified, yes. Um, we want the world, we want this society to hear our need, our desire for control over our bodies. And I totally get that. And I think we need to highlight that and value that. And it is, it is so strange to me that the Supreme Court is making this move in a time when the number of, of abortions is going down. It's been going down for years. As a matter of fact, I think for at least 15 years, if not more, it's been going down. The only two years that it has not gone down, I think it was 2017 and 18. Um, and so I'm asking myself, well, well why this move? Um, and I cannot help but think of that place in the New Testament where a woman is pulled before mm -hmm. people and they said she was caught in the act of adultery and they go to Jesus and say, the law of Moses says she ought to be stoned, mm -hmm. right? So technically, were they right? Yeah, but the, it's, it's, the, it's the why. The, it, it's all, it was about their power um, and uh, to uh, diminish the ministry of Jesus. And this uh, Supreme Court ruling seems to me to be something similar. Well, I mean, I do think to your point, it's just really important for folks who to understand that owning your own, if you don't own your own body, you're not free. And I think, yes, we limit actions in our culture. So I am, I am not free to kill you. <laughs> um, but for me not to be able to, or for a person, um, not to be able to decide whether or not they want to um, carry a pregnancy, I mean, that just means that, the, that some other entity other than the embodied person has control over the body. And, and I think, you know, I just think so many people who would identify as pro-life really just dismiss that much too quickly. To, and, and that is my problem is, 
I understand and, and can really identify with and and believe that people are sincere when they're saying they want to protect the lives of the unborn. I, I hear you. And a lot of times I actually believe you, but they act as if it's nothing for women to not own their own bodies or, or they'll be dismissive and say, well, you can own your own bodies as long as you don't have sex in a way that we think is inappropriate. And so then the reality is particularly, I mean, and I just, let me just remove any doubt. I think that abortion should be safe, legal, and rare. Like I, I think that's right. So let me put that in context, but I think it's particularly interesting to me when there are people who will say, well, we will permit abortion in cases of rape and incest, but not in other cases. And I'm like, that's interesting because it is then not about the life of the unborn child. It is about whether or not you think the woman, quote, deserved to mm -hmm. get pregnant. Mm -hmm. And then bearing a child becomes a punishment for a woman who behaved sexually in a way that you think is deviant. And so it's her own, quote, fault that she got pregnant. And so I'm just... You know, I, I just think that that's very clear in how we talk about things. Um, and and I think we need to own that, that there are people who say, who really believe that, who have strong beliefs around human sexuality, as do I, but believe that those um, their beliefs ought to be codified in law and take over bodily agency for women. And that's a that's a big thing. And um you know, and so one of the things we have to acknowledge is that the voices on both extremes are not helpful in navigating the nuance. Right. And I think, you know, the reality is I do think for lots of reasons um, that terminating a pregnancy is a is a is a tragedy. Um, and and I think that the life and the potential for life and I don't know when life begins so I'm not even going to try but I, I think it's it's sacred and we want to protect that but I also just really um, particularly the political wing so I'm not talking about individuals but the political ideology that is advancing this decision in other spheres have shown themselves not to be interested in sustaining vulnerable life so when it comes to um, you know, providing a path to um, safe immigration for people who are fleeing extreme poverty or violence when it comes to providing support for people who um, can't work, when it comes to providing affordable and safe housing, when it comes, I mean, like, we're just not a that particular party that is championing this specific policy in other spaces does not concerned itself with protecting the life of the most vulnerable. And so it is, I think it's fair for people to question, you say it's about sanctity of life, but when I look at the fullness of policies, I, I question whether it's really about control. Um, and, and I think that's fair. And I think it's up to the people who are championing the overturning of Roe v. Wade to get about what they understand to be their father's business in other areas so that when they say this is about protecting the life of the vulnerable and the unborn, people would look at the positions they're advancing when it comes to immigration, when it comes to um, folks experiencing homelessness, when it comes to um, health care and access to health care and go, oh, you do have a consistent ethic of life. When it comes to how people who are incarcerated are treated while they are incarcerated and also once they are released when it comes to, you know, I just, it is fair for people to say, I don't see any evidence that you are concerned with sacrificing your own power, your own resources, your own choices to protect the life of the vulnerable. I don't see you saying, well, we, we could have this kind of public policy that would benefit me, but there are people among me, my neighbors, um, who, who are suffering, and so I'm going to give up what would be best for me personally for the sake of my neighbor. I don't see that happening. And so then I think, yes, I, I really question whether this is what you want or whether you have the audacity to require a woman to sacrifice her agency and her choice and her preference for the sake of this vulnerable child when when you 
from a power position are, are not willing to do any of the same. So um, I think it, it, this past Sunday we were preaching about um, the beautiful gate passage from Acts 3, and there's this scene in there where um, Peter and John approach the temple and they're going to worship, and there's a man lying on the mat begging, and Peter says, look at me. Mm. And the scripture then says the man on the mat looks up expecting something and it just really strikes me that when we and and many of the people who are celebrating roe being overturned identify self-identify as evangelical christians and are saying both in their advocacy and in their celebration they're saying look at me and so now people are expecting something as they should Mm -hmm. and i think that for too many people they're saying all right we have over we have gotten rid of abortion now our work is done like we have satisfied the requirement because we've protected this life. And that's not true. Um, and people are looking expectantly and you've asked them to look at you and you need to meet those expectations because you have declared yourself to be a person who believes that the powerful should sacrifice to protect the weak. So you are powerful and I want to see those sacrifices and I don't see them. Yeah, I think there is, in, in addition to what you've just said, um, I, I think there is a, a concern, a very legitimate concern uh, from many, both who are uh, self-identified as pro-choice and pro-life, that um, this is part of a, a larger shift in our society. Uh, you know, you know, back when the moral majority was really at its height, um, there was this thinking that the, that the country just needs to go back, that the country... Um, took a wrong turn um, during the 60s, and we need to go back to the 1950s. And um, there are many who consider this uh, overturning row, that is, as part of a larger shift to go back. One might connect it to um, the the change in voter rights laws mm-hmm. in in different states or desegregation uh, right and so there there is a sense of um, white people in a time when the country is becoming more diverse instead of celebrating embracing the diversity of the country as a good as a um, a strength saying, no, 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 it, it automatically means the loss of privilege and power, therefore we must go back. Right, and I think it's just important to say that I, I think um, people look back to the 50s and they'd say, look, I am happy for people of all hues of skin to join me in coming back and living the way that we lived in the 50s. And so I think it's really important to understand that the people who look back at the 50s as an idyllic time were by and large people who had a lot of power and control and resources during that time and so you know and who were legitimately um protected not only from the suffering of vulnerable people but even from the knowledge in many cases well, of vulnerable and the people. world seemed simpler the world seemed simpler to people who had power mm-hmm. and i think that that's just important to notice that um that right now people are being heard who were not heard in the 50s. And so people are saying, I am not experiencing justice. I am not flourishing. I do not have liberty. And those voice, those were things were true in earlier eras, but those voices weren't heard. And so sometimes what people are saying is authentically in their experiences, it's not that I don't want I, I don't I only want people with white skin to it's I want people who who will have the agency and the desire to live like me <laughs> to to go back to that time when everyone I saw had it had the ability and the desire to live like me and and we're saying like the reality is there was great suffering and injustice and pain in that time period that people were sheltered from but it was still there and um, the the answer in from the kingdom of God 
is, you know, when Jesus says, like with the sheep of the goats in Matthew 25, like the fact that you didn't know the prisoner or the naked person or the person who was hungry, like you could live in a space where you never see any of those people, but that doesn't absolve you of responsibility. You are, we are our siblings keepers. And so right now we just have a lot more exposure to the brokenness of the world and, and going back to a time where we could pretend that the world wasn't broken because we didn't see it. Well, and I would add, and I, I say yes to that, and would add not only are we more exposed to the brokenness of the world, that this desire to go back is also a response to the good that is happening. Mm-hmm. I mean, and we see this also in terms of church transformation. Sometimes churches want to go back to, quote-unquote, the good old days, um, not because what's happening is bad but what's happening is good it just brings a level of discomfort new people mm-hmm. from the neighborhood are, are coming oh that means um worship changes because people with a different way of expressing themselves are entering that that's a good thing but it brings a level of discomfort and anxiety and so the so many of the shifts shifts that we are seeing in the country in terms of growing diversity they they are good but they challenge us. Right. I mean, just change is not comfortable. And becoming Absolutely. more righteous means facing our unrighteousness that previously might have been hidden from us. And that's a very painful process, but a necessary one. That's, you know, why the prophets are always sent by God and are always killed by God's people. Because um, we like to live in a world that tells us that we are holy, even when we're not. Um, and I... One thing that I just think it's really important to note, because I'm just really um, frustrated that I don't see it among people who identify as pro-life. And, and, and I want to state, I know a lot of people who sincerely are womb-to-tomb pro-life, mm. right? So um, th- that is just true. I don't think that that is true in the broader culture, but I know a lot of um, Christians who claim the word, the title evangelical, and and who really are sincerely living that out, and who are here to be challenged, and who are here for the work of justice, and who are here for putting their bodies and their lives on the line um, for racial justice and reconciliation. I mean, I, I and you know who want to um, be involved in the lives of those who are incarcerated. But and those be, voices don't get a lot of play. Those voices don't get a lot of um, um, play, and also. I hear a lot of people who are sincerely advocating for the unborn who um, betray a an understanding of what abortion is that is formed by um, the culture's loudest voices of um, advocating for the unborn. And so they talk about partial abor- abortion as if most of the abortions that happen are happening where like eight month old babies are being ripped out of their mother's wombs and then just like strangled and tossed in the garbage. And that is not partial birth abortions are very rare. And when partial birth birth abortions happen, it is 99% of the time because the baby is very much wanted. Women don't end up seven, eight, or even six months pregnant without choosing to be pregnant, especially in a world where abortion is an option. And, you know, they discover that their life is threatened or that the baby's body is inconsistent with life. And then their the most humane choice that they can give for their baby is um, a, a death where they are not suffering or they want to um, protect their ability to have other children or literally they too will die if they carry this pregnancy to term. And I just feel like people want to say that partial birth abortions are only done by women who are monsters instead of recognizing that most of the people who loudly proclaim themselves to be pro-life, many of the times abortion happens, they themselves would agree this is pro-life, right? If a if an ectopic pregnancy has happened, mm-hmm. that pregnancy is in the fallopian tubes. It will never be able to become a viable um, fetus because it just simply the biology will not sustain that. But the only way to treat that pregnancy is with an abortion. If you do not get an abortion, you will die and so the baby will die. And I hear people saying things like, well, medical technology. No, no. Medical technology cannot fix that. And I hear disingenuous people 
present to incredulous people that there's no such thing as an ectopic pregnancy that's incompatible with life. And there is no such thing as an ectopic pregnancy that is compatible with life. And sometimes, you know, people get infections in their uterus while they are pregnant. And that just means that if that their uterus will become septic, which means the baby will die and the mother will die. But the only way to treat that is with an abortion. And people, you know, people don't talk about making exceptions for the health of the mother. They don't, they, they'll just say, oh, well, if you press them on it, they'll say, oh, of course, for the health of the mother. When you don't lead with a respect for life for the of the mother, then there's no of course if you're a person who knows that your fate is in the hands of someone who is not considering your life as a life worth protecting as well. And there are already hospitals in this country who will not treat women with ectopic pregnancies. Wow. Catholic hospitals will not provide an abortion, period, end of story. Not if the mother is septic, not if there is an ectopic pregnancy. That mother has no choice but to, or that, that pregnant person has no choice but to seek an abortion in another facility. And there's no guarantee that there are going to be hospitals that will help those people when they know that they can be sued and shut down or you know there are spontaneous abortions miscarriages that start happening that the mother is bleeding out and if the mother is not assisted with an abortion she will bleed out and die and before roe became legal women if if they had the advantage they would go to the hospital and the hospital would have no choice but to transfuse liter after liter after liter after liter of blood into this mother in the hope that the pregnancy would finish spontaneously miscarrying and only then could they provide treatment for the mother because it was illegal and we we assume that that'll never happen again and when we look at the maternal death rates of black women right now i don't you know it's really unfair to just blithely make the assumption that all women will be protected when you're not talking about that at all. And again, I think that the world looking expectantly at evangelical Christians would see an authentic concern for life if the people who were advocating for the life of the unborn were also in the same breath advocating and acknowledging the sacredness of the life of the mother and the sacredness of the lives of mothers, particularly black mothers and indigenous mothers and mothers of color who are dying right now. And so that that is just, you know, the huge frustration is people don't seem they seem to want to reduce biology, which is complex, to a political talking point, and it doesn't work, but those words really will kill actual women, mm. and people who are advocating for the life of the unborn will be part of that if they don't also, in the same breath, advocate for the life of mothers. So, I just, um, I also just think I do want to decrease the number of abortions in this country. And I do want to create a culture of life. And I do want to create a world where, where everyone sees the sacredness of every human life and is willing to sacrifice for it. But like every other part of my commitment to Jesus Christ, it can't be forced or compelled. It, it has to be chosen or it's not holy. And I just... I think I want more pregnant people to choose to carry their pregnancies to term and then place a child for adoption simply because they see the sacredness of human life. But we as the church have to work harder to cast vision so that people would know the goodness of abundant life and want to provide it for um, fetuses and embryos and the unborn. Yeah, I, I want to highlight something you just said um, about casting vision. I'm personally convicted by that because I think uh, I'm one of those people that can spend so much time talking about what I'm against that I do not present, have not presented a, a, a compelling enough vision for people 
to say along with me, I am for these things. And um, too often I have participated in our culture's culture war to say those people are bad, we are righteous, and really have not entered into um, a conversation that really wrestles with nuance with those who have a different who do take a different uh, side than I do and and I do think that the reality is people um, people who are not um, political operatives <laughs> um, but who allow their understanding of um, of of issues like abortion to be largely informed by political operatives need to understand that you um, may be being manipulated by someone who actually does not share your genuine and sincere value of life or choice, right? And, and, and so I just think people need to be able to really listen critically to the people who are on, quote, their own side and really say, do I do I really am I really willing to go all the way both in these policies and and in the way that the people on the quote other side are being viewed because I think the vast majority of people who find themselves opposed to one another actually share a lot of common ground about what good health care looks like for women and about about what we want for um for the unborn, right? I, I think that there's a lot more common ground than the powers and principalities of darkness would have us believe and the spirit of enmity that I, I think is being sown in our communities for the sake of power for an elite elite few. Um, and I, I think that's really important. And I also just want to say, um, I, I think a lot about people who identify, who are pro-choice, um, that I just really wish that they would remember that people who are listening to them talk about um, pregnant people and about the unborn, that a lot of those people um, have adoption as part of their story. Either um, maybe they were adopted or they love someone who was adopted. And I just think sometimes when we are advocating for healthcare for women and we are advocating for bodily autonomy for women, we don't um, think seriously enough about the fact that um, the, the life inside the, the womb of the woman is not more, I mean, it's just, I hate that we live in a world where life has to compete with life, right? Yes, and I, I that is what I hear in so many uh, of, of of women's voices so why is why is my life second right and i and i think we can all work together to say you know maybe if we stop trying to control people's sexuality if we were willing to give people the information and the resources they need to have sex in a way that did not result in conception then we would see less unplanned or unwanted pregnancies, which should make everybody happy. But because we want to compel by limiting information and options, we want to force people, we think, to be to come in line with our understanding of what the best expressions of human sexuality are, we end up denying them with what they need to make safe choices for themselves. And then we end up with a lot of unintended pregnancies. And that's a problem. Like we try to say, like, we don't want children to have sex. So we are not going to teach them about sex or we're going to tell them don't have sex or else or you cannot have any birth control. And then, of course, that doesn't prevent kids from having sex, but it does prevent them from having sex that um, doesn't result in pregnancies. And and the same like there are a lot of women who abort children who they would like to have. But they just know that they cannot, they cannot support another child. They're already working two jobs with no benefits, couch surfing, or always on the edge of being evicted, or living in their car. They would love to live in a world where they could have another child, but they know they can't without jeopardizing the well-being of the children that they have. And we need to understand that we force women to make terrible choices because we do not 
you know, we're not building a society based around the idea of interdependent flourishing, right? We say people get what they deserve. And so if people are poor, I'm not helping them with housing. I'm not sending them to school. I'm not helping them with food. And we really say, I'm not helping you with birth control because on some level we think you shouldn't, you don't deserve to have sex. Well, this is also a reminder that as Americans, we tend to obsess over sex, sex and sexuality. Like the, the, the birth rate in the country is going down. Teen pregnancy, down. Abortion, down. Sex in general, down in terms of uh, American society. Um, and I'm reminded that um, in the Old Testament, Israel was most often punished by God, not for sexual sin, but for idolatry, mm -hmm. how they treated the poor. And we in this country get really worked up when you start talking about sex and sexuality and not so much when it comes to poverty. Well, and I also just think we assume that the um, vision of human sexuality that is preached by the dominant forms of evangelical Christianity in America today, we assume that that is a biblical vision. And it's just not. Like, I'm sorry. Biblical marriage is not one man, one woman. It isn't. And also, in, in the biblical version of sexuality, um, which I don't think is God's version, but is the story of how God showed up in the lives of a particular people in a culture where women were not fully human, where a woman's sexuality was a commodity that was owned first by her father and then by her husband. Those are not our values. And, and to be clear, I don't think they were God's values. Correct. I think that God chose a particular people at a particular time where these were their understandings and then God was intervening and revealing God's self to them and trying to lead them into a wholly different way of being human and the people resisted that um, but I also just think we assume that it was inappropriate for women and men to have sex outside of the covenant of marriage in the Hebrew Bible and in the New Testament and that is not true adultery was prohibited but an unmarried woman who had sex, particularly after she was no longer in the household of her father, was not understood as breaking any sexual codes. And so, you know, when we, and I'm not, you know, to, for parts of the body of Christ to call people to celibacy and singleness and, um, you know, committed sexuality and the covenant of marriage, I'm not even saying that's a bad call. Right. I, I do believe that human sexuality is most wholly expressed in a covenanted relationship between two individuals, in a monogamous relationship between two individuals. So I'm not even saying that the call um, the, of the kind of sexuality that a lot of churches preach is, is bad or wrong. I'm just saying it is not straight derived from the cultures that are represented in scripture. And I think people are making um, an understanding based on how God revealed God's self to the world, that this is how we can use our bodies in a way that's pleasing to God. And I think that's great. Like we're supposed to be doing that work, but just to say the way I think sex should work is the way the Bible says it was and close the book and throw it at people is just, it's bad biblical scholarship. And it is, it's just not true. Well, and that's not the only issue that the people of God had to grow, right? grow in, right? So the understanding that the, the God of Israel is not um, uh, some tribal God just for Israel only. They had to grow in the understanding, oh, God is the God of the whole world. I mean, he was there from the beginning, but they had to learn and relearn that. And there are many issues where they just had to grow. And I, I mean, there's just lots of stories of people that we would call biblical heroes having sex outside of the covenant of marriage. And, you know, that's not one of the problems that God had with them. So I'm not saying that God delighted in it because I don't, I, you know, a lot of times um, it's not a healthy expression of human sexuality in my eyes. But I'm just saying this idea that Adam and Eve were married in the Garden of Eden, <laughs> and that's how we know that human sexuality is between one man and one woman, and it's always not okay 
uh, like adultery is always prohibited in scripture. I can't think of an incident um, where God seems to be unconcerned with adultery. I mean, it's one of the Ten Commandments, but yes. but but that's a think about violating marriage codes. Um, but human sexuality expressed outside of the covenant of marriage, uh, you know, there's just more nuance in how um, God thinks about that. And particularly, I'm thinking about um, um, Tamar, who has sex. She is not married, happens to be with her father-in-law, and it's counted as righteousness. Um, or someone like Rahab, who was a prostitute, who was counted as righteous. And, you know, and Jesus is often um, consorting with women who are sex workers. And um, do I believe personally with no judgment in my heart that sex working is um, work in in the sex trade is uh, promotes human flourishing for women and men? I don't. But I do think that Jesus did not see these women as, um, you know, morally defective in any way. I mean, they were fully human and celebrated in his eyes um, because the way we see sexuality and the way God sees sexuality is different no matter how many people stand up on a platform with a Bible and declare their own views and then put thus says the Lord at the end of it. So yeah. we, we have to stop talking, which is kind of scary because this is such a big and a nuanced, uh, this is such a big and nuanced and just like deeply, you know, we're talking about real people's lives and the most tender parts of their lives and the most sort of um, vulnerable parts of their stories. And so th that's why it's just always sort of scary to talk about these as if they're abstract issues when they're just mm -hmm. not, when when they're all soaked in tears and blood. Yeah. And um, so it's kind of scary to stop having the conversation um, because I'm worried that we just might have unintentionally said something that wounded a person in a way that we didn't intend um and because we are not sitting here with notes we're just talking that's right as we talk i mean we just talk and and i think there need to be more spaces where believers can just talk and can kind of covenant together to say i just want to talk about what i think about these issues and where god is in these issues and i have a partner who's not going to say be waiting to like say got you or you know you did something terrible and so I, I think it's important to model that even though I'm sure that if somebody you know gave me a transcript of our conversations I, I would see things and go oh I didn't intend to you know right. suggest that or you know but um but even though this was an imperfect conversation I do still think it's an important one to model having that like we have to be able to talk and in a safe place to talk and in a safe space to say something where someone might say oh actually do you recognize what the implications of that are and we can not feel like garbage well, because but this conversation learn. is not about winning an argument no it's about growing in faithfulness and in our understanding of how the lord wants us to relate to people and and in the church we have to be able to talk about things that really matter in the context of the body of christ without feeling like our belonging or our ontological identity is at stake that is huge yeah because that i think that's what's at stake for so many not only in the church but in society right I, I saw a bumper sticker the other day that said, if you are a, and they named the political party, you cannot be a Christian. Like, really? Right. And I see a lot of people, and I understand, like, I understand the need to protect your mental well-being, but I see a lot of people saying, like, well, if you think X about Y, go ahead and unfriend me now. And I think, again, you know, I'm not going to have extended conversations with people who express you know the views of white supremacy particularly if i were a person of color i'm not called to that but i also think like if we can't have spaces where we say i want to talk about something really tender and i know i might not be right and i know it matters to get it right and if there's no place we can have those conversations then we are left with just saying like well i got to go stand behind the loudest voice and trust that they've got it right because i'm not allowed to think mm -hmm. and so i think um, modeling a conversation where we're, we are thinking out loud together about what does it mean and what are all the implications and nuances and how can we be a faithful um, servant leader um, when everyone is wrestling with this stuff. Even if we get some things wrong, it's important to model having the conversation. So um, now we're going to stop talking because occasionally I do that. And 
<laughs> just want to thank you all for listening. Um, I got to go <laughs> set up some some projects for some kids. And um, But uh, thanks for listening. And if you want to find out more about what God is doing at Derida Presbyterian Church, you can um, hop over to their website, which is D-E-R-I-T-A Pres, P-R-E-S dot org. And you can find um, just Yolanda's back catalog of messages on the Derida Pres podcast, which is on the Podbeam website. And you can also check out their YouTube channel and um, get a glimpse of their worship services. And you can also worship with them on Sunday mornings at 1030 11 at 11 o'clock. Just kidding. 11 o'clock. Now that's in your mind. Um, and if you want to find out more about what God is doing at the Grove Presbyterian Church, you can go to our website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org. Um, you can check out our podcast, really especially look for Nicole Thompson's sermon from uh, Juneteenth. Uh, it's uh, the Grove Church podcast on iTunes or, you know, wherever you get your podcasts, wherever, wherever. we're everywhere. You, We are ubiquitous. And if um, also our, our YouTube channel, the Grove Church YouTube channel, look for the tree and you can worship with us at 10 o'clock on Sundays. So thanks for listening and we will talk to you next week.